1: You have accessed entry 1020.IS1418, Certificate Number 26374, Queen Victoria's Grandchildren.
2: I believe there's quite a crowd outside waiting to hear the proclamation. Perhaps now would be a good time to uh, show yourself on the balcony. In the proclamation, I'm referred to as Alexandrina Victoria, but I do not like the
0: name Alexandrina. From now on, I wish to be called Victoria.
2: Queen Victoria. Do you anticipate having
1: grandchildren? It's one of my fondest dreams. Really? You know, my, my kids are, teenagers are getting there. Have you ever, have you had the phenomenon? Do you have, do you have friends with, uh, with grown kids? Yeah. Do they tell you how delightful it is that now their kids are actual adults they can talk to and, uh you know, have real relationships with. I've heard of this. I think it's bull. Really? Sure. (laughs) Guess what? I already have tons of adult (laughs) friends. I don't need my kids to turn into my other adult friends. I'm good. Right. Like my kids were delightful because they were my kids. Right. And they would do fun, childlike things with childlike joy and glee.
2: And as they become adults, you feel like you're going to be like, ugh, these annoying adults.
1: Even if they're great adults, I have plenty of adults. What I didn't have was kids. Right. And so that's where you get the parents that are just so desperately hungry to meddle in their kids' private and reproductive lives to give me grandkids.
2: But you didn't have kids until fairly late. I mean, you weren't like yeah. having kids at 25. That's true. Right. But I
1: was 27 when my son was
2: born. Interesting. I was not feeling
1: ready for fatherhood. Uh-huh. Um, but it turned out I was actually pretty good at it. Like yeah. it turned out it was like the one thing in my life I actually felt. Did you have that experience with your daughter? Were you like, this is scary,
2: but I knew I would be good at it because I'd seen You'd seen uh, movies about fathers. Well, no, I'd seen the incontrovertible proof that all kinds of people have kids. <laughs> and, and and it doesn't always select for the most uh apt, right? I mean, there are so many parents out there, and there is a obviously a wide a variation in how good parents are. I mean, some parents are truly bad and you can point them out. They do bad things. You can point them out at the store often. And some parents are, you know, obviously pretty darn good. But really, it's a big fat middle there (laughs) where you can do a pretty just, you know, average job and still you got the job done. I uh, knew they, I would. they be never a,
1: went to jail, but right. we never actually talked about our feelings once.
2: I mean, think about how many kids go to college in America today. And that was always like a benchmark. Were you a good parent? Did your kids go to college? Right. Are they more or less happy and well-adjusted? I didn't, I never expected that my kids were going to be, were ever going to write a book about how their dad was the greatest dad that ever lived. I just knew I would be fine. What's
1: your equivalent of like no more wire hangers ever? I don't know what that's a reference to,
2: <laughs> like Joan Crawford. Oh, Joan, Joan Crawford reference. Daughter. daughter. Oh, uh, let's see. What's my weirdest thing? Um, What's the
1: thing that Marla's going to be telling a therapist
2: about in um, in twenty thirty? Uh, well, I huh? What is it going to be? I mean, I'm just I'm an anachronism compared to most of her peers' parents, right? I'm a little bit older, and I believe in— even in Seattle. Yeah, even so, I think I'm a, I'm not not a ton older, but a little older. I mean, I was raised by Victorians, right? My my parents were both raised by Victorians. My my dad's you mother was were, born. You were raised
1: in, by time-traveling Victorians. Uh, H.G. Wells came to you as
2: a child and said, I've got some tips. But they were late. My grandparents were late breeders. My great-grandparents were late breeders. So. Yeah,
1: when you say your dad was born in 25? 21.
2: 21. And, my dad
1: was born in like 49. Right.
2: And his mother was born in 1880, I think. Yeah. Or 1886, I guess. And my mother was raised by her grandparents and my mother's grandmother was raised or born in 1886.
1: Late breeders are good for giving kids um, cool ancestors for elementary school. Yeah. Like with the short Mormon generations on my sides, my kids are always like... (laughs) <laughs> grandpa was too young for World War II, but he fought in Korea.
2: My great 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 grandfather oh, drove the, a Model A across America. That
1: is their actually it's true. Their great grandpa was too young for World War II, but fought in Korea. Yeah, that's and I always crazy. felt bad for my kids
2: because my dad fought in World War II. Yeah, but so yeah, I mean, I have pictures around the house of my of fairly recent, you know, just two generations away, and they're absolutely and they and they're with their slaves. They're absolutely wearing. I mean, I ha, I actually have the papers where my what is it? Great great great-grandfather was pardoned by President Grant for his rebellion <laughs> against the Union. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but what that what that communicated to me was a lot of anachronistic language, um, some values that felt kind of old even in the 70s when I was a kid. Just a sense of, I, I, I don't, I, it's difficult to describe other than just sort of as a sense of decorum sure. and honor and... And uh, you know, maybe other kinds of greatest generation
1: trappings too. You're probably not even aware of all the slang and the songs. Well,
2: that for sure, the jazz stuff, but but more uh, like a sense that a, that a family should be committed to public service. Things like this that felt like definitely not what they were teaching you in the 60s. It
1: sounds like that's not going to traumatize your kids. Our family prioritized public service and
2: honor. (laughs) Ah. No, there's no wire hanger aspect, except just that her dad is like a rock musician and sleeps as late. I mean, maybe the worst (laughs) thing for her is that she wakes me up every morning like, (laughs) dad, get up. She's like rolling the
1: carpet sweeper with one hand and tapping you on the shoulder with the other. Dad, it's nine o'clock.
2: But I think it's true that you know we we think back to the era of the colonial years and the the rich the the like robber baron era in the United States, the Carnegies and the Vanderbilts and the Morgans and so forth, and we think of those people as kind of being like reprehensible capitalists or colonialists that uh, the nineteenth century was the era that is referred to as Pax Britannica, which was a whole hundred years where the British Navy was so powerful that they kind of could impose Britain on the world and Britain's values. And now we see that as the colonial era and we are conscious of all of the crimes that happened there. We we used to just
1: see it from the point of view of the people changing the map color and being like, good job, you made a lot of the map pink. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And it's it's a recent invention. Like, what if we considered that from the other, is there any other point of view you consider Pax Britannica from? Besides yeah, sure. When we were raised, it was Navy. like,
2: this was just a game of Stratego. <laughs> right. Uh, Carving up Africa like in board games, right? But during that period, there was a sense of, uh, and and we ridicule it because it's easily ridiculable from a kind of, um, from the sense of the white man's burden or a sense that that, that Britain was, exporting democracy to the world or, and whatever, like the, the Monty Python joke, clean water, aqueduct, et cetera. What did the Romans ever <laughs> give to us? But, you know, the, the British Navy outlawed piracy on the open seas. Uh, Britain was the first Britain nation outlawed slavery to outlaw slavery. Ahead of the curve. They were, they were abolitionist hipsters. This was during that same period. But there was a sense that it, in America, too, that if you were extremely wealthy, that you – you had a responsibility to become a a benefactor, right? You're the, the, the Carnegie's and the melons and the, although they were obscenely rich, there was an obligation as a a millionaire or what we would think of as a billionaire now to turn that money back into public works.
1: I would imagine we'll have a full omnibus entry about Carnegie free libraries someday because, you know, basically every American got a library
2: um, because Andrew Carnegie had more money than he knew what to do with and I I think when we look at contemporary billionaires, I mean very famously Bill Gates was in his 40s and had never given away a penny. <laughs> he had some road to Damascus moment, I guess. Well, Warren Buffett called him up and said, "You're an embarrassment to billionaires everywhere. <laughs> You're giving us <laughs> a bad name. People love <laughs> billionaires, but not you." <laughs> and so he so Gates formed the Gates Foundation and became a great philanthropist.
1: But I guess I, you hit an age where you have to think about your legacy and uh, he had never realized boy this is what people are going to say i'm the richest man in the world and i i, I did nothing I, I did nothing i did i gave nobody a, a new chemical toilet
2: but we see billionaires now they have a much more i mean in a way some of their philanthropy either feels begrudging or still pretty much just pet projects like self glorification. Yeah, Bezos is building a rocket ship to Mars or whatever, but it's but he's still trying to shirk his taxes.
1: But it looks like him. It's a giant right. metal copper
2: version of him that'll be flying through space. Elon with- Musk literally launched a Corvette into space with a what a dummy of himself in it or something like with headphones on, listening to Max L tapes.
1: Is it because there was some gap where there were no good billionaires to live up to? The Depression created a generation that couldn't look up to a philanthropic. Carnegie and Rockefeller types. So really all they had was Bond movies Uh to teach them how to be a powerful rich person. (laughs) And that all went totally wrong. If there had just been like one nice billionaire in the the 40s and 50s, everyone would have been like, oh, you just got to build a lot of hospitals like this guy.
2: But when you think about the Kennedys, when you think about the political dynasties of the United States from that same era, you know, the Kennedys were rich with bootlegging money, but... Whatever you think of Joe Kennedy's politics, he definitely charged all of his children with, um, with the idea that they owed a lifetime of public service to the United States. And think of all the, the boat shoe manufacturers they kept afloat. <laughs> Literally afloat. I think now there's a lot of cynicism about public service because it's always viewed through a lens of power. Power consolidation, greed for power. And, there, and especially
1: it, the fact that there are families that are still in this business. Right. It seems unseemly to us that four presidents in a row would have the same last name potentially, you know? Right.
2: And that the the Bush dynasty would be some kind of, um, you know, American... Aristocracy. Yeah. We're opposed to it in our very natures.
1: Yeah, it would be more meritocratic. Like, what are the odds that, you know, the four best presidents out of five were named Bush or Clinton? There, right. there must have been somebody better somewhere. It just seems like the math doesn't add up, right? Seems
2: like it. Although if you put the Bushes up against, say, the Waltons, who during the same period. From the TV show? No, those <laughs> Waltons are, are above reproach.
1: Like, you, don't, you wouldn't vote for John Boy? <laughs> John Boy. Good John Imagine boy. the White House turning off the lights every
2: night. <laughs> Good night, Sue Ellen. But, you know, the Walton family has become one of the richest families or the richest family in the world. And none of those people seem to, dedicated to public service. If
1: there, is, if there is a thing, I don't know. I feel bad now because what if there are all these Walton University libraries and hospitals and I just don't know. I
2: imagine they have been shamed into giving their money away. But, you know, a lot of the rich, like the Koch brothers, just give their money to super partisan politics.
1: I mean, though, Sam Walton's idea was that, you know, I can make all my kids billionaires and right. I'm going to do it. I'm going
2: to do like, it. Like I'm not spending a penny. And what, and H- so he's exporting billionaires to the future in light of that, the Bush family, despite their aristocratic aspect, like they've devoted themselves to public service rather than to making more money, which is, uh, which has a kind of nobility that, that our contemporary cynicism doesn't have as many, uh, ways to appreciate. We don't kind of the allow for The cynical view it.
1: would be they have so much money. It's okay. They've moved on to a different arena. Right. Accumulation of power. And there, there may be some truth to that.
2: There is, but there are an awful lot of people that didn't... I mean, it's not like the Waltons don't have political power, right? It's just masked, and they make no, they make no attempt to like do anything on behalf of anyone. Luckily, right? they're
1: in Arkansas,
2: you know? Right.
1: I, if you live in Arkansas, I assume you, you know their
2: position on everything, because
1: at the stroke of a pen, they could disband the
2: state legislature. It's kind of amazing that Bill Clinton came out of Arkansas. I'm sure that that there are conspiracy theories galore about his relationship to the Waltons. There would have to be, right? How many Waltons he had to pay off. But in Europe during the 19th century, it was a time from the beginning to the end that was extremely fraught. It was an era where, starting at the French Revolution, the traditional kingdoms, royal families, the... Hegemonic control of Europe by an aristocracy was in jeopardy. The French deposed their king, and that That scared everybody. It scared the heck out of everybody. And gradually over time, the threat of revolution, the threat of destabilization was sort of every nation in Europe had a paranoia about the future.
1: But it was pretty much staved off for a uh, 100 years, right? Like not until the Russian Revolution. We have a century of delay.
2: And and it, in, in whatever the, it was worked, right? In the middle of this period, you know, Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. There was a, a period in uh, 1866 where there was the threat of collapse of all the royal houses and they were shored back up. The fact that the Ottoman Empire was in decline really threw the balance of power in that whole region off because they'd been so focused on the Ottomans and then all of a sudden there was a power vacuum and Russia was trying to fill it. It is
1: funny how, uh, you know, you're only aware of this stuff in hindsight. You know, now AP history teachers can give their kids a one-sentence summary of... The Ottoman Empire being the sick old man of Europe. Right. And the kid writes down destabilization. <laughs> but in our era, it's funny to imagine some AP history teacher doing that in 50 years, God willing, yeah. and being like, the decline of America is what destabilize, you know, is what led to China's rise. You know, it's not, it, the narratives are not always so clear when you're in the middle of it.
2: Yeah, and, and, and the rise of China in our own time has happened so fast and so dramatically that I think it's an example of a thing where we can see ho- historical forces at work in real time.
1: It's helpful, too, yeah. if you're
2: in the declining nation.
1: Otherwise, you know, the British had very little idea because it happened so slowly. Americans are very aware.
2: And, and the, the, I think the bold relief of it often causes us to forget that America still has the largest economy in the world by, by a major factor, right? I mean, the, the Chinese have a much greater import-export economy, but we still are the, um, the global hegemon
1: and uh, probably militarily as well. Oh. You know, a lot of the stuff about China that looks good on paper is a, uh, you know, it's an army of of conscripts. Yeah, who they are, don't have who an are, aircraft carrier.
2: Right. So, but what was also happening in Europe at this time was, and th- these are things that often aren't really on AP history tests, is that at the beginning of the 19th century, there was no Italy. Italy was a, a confederation and a, and often warring. Did, did collection? the land just end at Switzerland? It did. There was a there was you, a big harbor there. You could there. sail
1: straight
2: from <laughs> Greece to France. It was nice. It was a shortcut. Yeah, it was great. And uh, there were there was no Italian language or culture or food. And all then of that was g- invented. And what on what
1: day did this giant boot arise out of the sea <laughs> with like Garibaldi holding a trident like Aquaman
2: at, yeah, its, at its heel? Actually, it was all funded by Olive Garden, <laughs> uh, which was a company formed in Pittsburgh. No, uh, uh, the Italians had never unified. They didn't think of themselves really as a single people. The northern Italians and southern Italians had less in common than the northern Itali- than the northern Italians did with the Austrians, which is
1: still true today. Right. But they've got now they've got a national myth holding them together.
2: And you know that national myth was um Napoleon set everything aflame in Europe. Uh he, literally. Literally and figuratively. He walked
1: around lighting things on
2: fire. Napoleon had, uh, he crossed Germany, what we think of now as Germany. I mean, he laid waste to Central Europe in such a way that the Germans, who also, there was no Germany. There was Austria. There was Prussia. There was the Kingdom of Hesse. There were... Schleswig-Holstein? Right, and, and uh, you know, the Elector of Frandenburg. It's, it's
1: all Electorates <laughs> and Palatinates.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. As far as the eye can see. Um they did not have any kind of sense of their own cultural unity germanness and napoleon made such quick work of them that he inspired a kind of nationalism in the germans like wait a minute we're all germans here why are we taking it why are we taking it from the french so badly and and also the beginning in italy of this sense of national identity that we need to we need to fight a war of independence we need to put aside our old conflicts and become a people and a nation we think of the Germans as being this cause of so much trouble in Europe in the 20th century. But prior to World War I, the German national identity was still very much nascent.
3: When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus $20 off your first box when you visit ButcherBox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's ButcherBox.com iHeart or
1: use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Today we see royal houses as a, a kind of a, a level above government as a way to create kind of a national myth and story and identity that, that perseveres even as governments come and go, as they often do in Europe. I assume that was the case in the 19th century as well. It uh,
2: was, but the powers of minor nobility, a, a duke held much more authority and sway. Like a duchy was a land in which a duke ruled autocratically or ruled as would a king. And a grand duchy obviously was, um, was grander. But I, I love that you say Ducci, by the way. Yeah, well, uh, well uh, you pass the Ducci down the left-hand side. What do you say, dookie? <laughs> yeah, I say dookie. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the Green Day record. That was a great record. <laughs> Not really. I think I just say Dutchy. Dutchy. Yeah, like, but that sounds too much like Dutch. Yeah, I suppose. Well, why don't you say Dutchy and I'll say dookie. Let's call the whole thing off. And, uh, and we'll see who gets
1: maddest about it on the internet. The problem is there's too many of them, right? If you've got all these dukes and princes, nobody
2: can, who can follow all that? It is complicated. And who follows it are the royal families who are extremely concerned with primogeniture. And um, it's not hypothetical to them. Like, no, the, the, it would not just be the
1: doom of, you know, Sam Walton wants to make sure all his kids are billionaires, but you could literally submarine a country if the wrong syphilitic party boy took the throne or if he didn't have the right spouse with the connections to the neighbor. It's all serious stuff.
2: And in, in a lot of cases, your line of succession seems clear, but there are an awful lot of pretenders to different thrones because there's so much intermarriage. Plus more deaths.
1: right? Today, you, can be, you know, Prince Charles is going to be in his 70s before he ever takes the uh, British throne, if indeed he does. Back then, the, the, it would be like a baseball team trading players every
2: season. You have no idea who's going to actually survive to, to their 20s. And the royal titles often were tied to land. They were based actually in, in possession, of areas, you were the Duke of, of uh, Lombardy, and that meant that w- that was not something that was transferable. I mean, famously, the nation of Liechtenstein, the Duchy, uh, the Duchy Duchy of Liechtenstein, the Liechtenstein family had never visited Liechtenstein. For, I think, a, a long period. The nation was sort of awarded to them, but they all lived in Vienna. And weren't really aware, you know, had no interest in going up to this weird mountain pass. And they just, it generated income. That's very relatable, actually. (laughs) I also have no interest in that. Let me tell you, Liechtenstein's a very interesting place to visit. I I want to go there. I wouldn't want to move there, but. Great stamps. They have good stamps. It's a good place. You know, it's very Swiss there. And I think for a long time, they were kind of positing themselves as a banking, like an an even more secretive banking location than Switzerland. If the Swiss <laughs> revealed too much. If this is 16 digits, we got <laughs> 18. And then I, then they got in trouble. They got in trouble within a European context because they were sheltering so much money there.
1: I think Liechtenstein is the place where uh, Prince Hans actually invites everyone over. He invites the whole country over once a year. Uh, to come over to the... Just to come over to the castle. Huh? Every, like literally, everybody, it's like a barbecue that the whole... Anybody with a passport... Can come to. There
2: aren't a ton of people there, and a lot of the country is just basically you would have to be a mountain goat to inhabit the land.
1: Today, though, you know, it's funny how I, I remember as a kid just being very confused by all these British royal titles that seem to be connected to a place Prince of Wales, Duke of mm-hmm. Cambridge, uh, you know, whatever. But in fact, it's all, it's all just ceremonial and completely arbitrary. <laughs> like, there's uh, the last Welshman to be Prince of Wales died in 1282, right. I think. Uh, and I know that hurts you as a Welshman to have does. To, to think about how Prince Charles has been occupying
2: your land for so long. Well, they did. They subjugated us under their... Under his, car- under under his their, ears? Their Savile Row boots. <laughs> uh, but, but this is an era still when a hereditary title, although it was less frequent, but a hereditary title could still be granted by a monarch. You know, you could be made the Duke of something and it would transfer to your family. And that, it would come with land. That doesn't happen anymore, right? The last time the queen of england granted a hereditary title i don't know when it was but it, not in recent years
1: so if for example um kate middleton wanted to just because she's duchess of cambridge she can't like tear down cambridge university and build a whatever she wants you no, yo- hot yoga studio they no
2: longer have that kind of absolute power and that was in decline throughout the 17th 18th 19th centuries you know the like oliver cromwell definitely took some of the power away from the monarch and It was the era, the rise of the, the parliament and democracy was in the air. No longer absolute monarchs, but they do still have a very important power, which is
1: over family affairs and family trees, right?
2: Well, and, and, and in politics as well, um much more so than they had in the 20th century. Sure, but
1: I was trying to jump to the nominal topic of the episode, yeah, which yeah. is the kind of influence that someone like, oh,
2: Queen Victoria. The familial power, though, translated into real political power. Uh, and political power in Europe at that time was a family business.
1: Well, there's, I assume a lot of it is just alliances and stability. You, you feel like uh, France is not going to invade you if you can marry somebody off to a French noble. or
2: France not being a good example here, but... It's complicated, though, when everyone is related to everyone, because if everyone's related to everyone, it's not, it no longer really inhibits political problems, right? You need a few unrelated countries that everyone can still <laughs> invade, right? I mean, if you read Shakespeare, just being related to someone does not keep you from wanting them dead.
1: And this was the case in the 19th century that literally all the crowned heads of Europe were related and intermarried.
2: Well, so part of this Pax Britannica, this sense that now that the United Kingdom was the global hegemon, that their navy was capable of projecting their political power globally. And also, this is after um, The Wealth of Nations was written and, and Britain adopted capitalism as their lingua franca. It was now seen as bad for business to have war. They're uh, a nation of shopkeepers now. That's right. Not admirals or whatever anymore. And so what had been prior to this, an era where Europe was, or multiple eras, where Europe was sort of almost constantly at war in one form or another, Queen Victoria in particular, as she became more and more of a power and more and more of a personification of the Pax Britannica, she set about to through this process of marriage alliance solidify what was hoped to be a kind of perpetual era of interlinked european nations that had no cause to war and victoria because she was a having never seen actual siblings i guess she she <laughs> thought that no one could ever fight <laughs> well victoria knew a little bit about sibling rivalry because she had 9 children and her 9 children were all princesses and princes and potentially major players in the European sphere of influence. And she was very adept at marrying her children to other royal houses.
1: We have the idea that uh, Queen Victoria was as sexually repressed as her era, but I understand that's actually not true. There are many accounts that she was deeply in love with Albert, famously mourned him for decades after his death, and was actually pretty into sex, but less so into child rearing. Like, I, I don't know if she was the most attentive mom. But no,
2: that wouldn't have been very fashionable. I think she turned her she kids immediately it. over to a thousand nannies.
1: I think she also like beat them and told them they were ugly. I mean, to be fair, if you've seen a lot of pictures of 19th century royals, many of them probably were
2: ugly. Although her children were um, often strangely attractive. Are you Victorian's picturing,
1: are you picturing uh, young princess Victoria? Uh,
2: young Princess Victoria. I, I'm picturing her right now. I'm often picturing her. Yeah, do you Do you have wallpaper with her <laughs> face on it? Yeah, uh, Victoria and Albert were, it was an arranged marriage, like all of these marriages would have been, but they actually were quite passionate with one another. You know, the Prince Albert is, um, that refers now to a piercing, a genital piercing. Uh, so there's a sense that Prince Albert really was Really was ahead of his time. He was a modern primitive. (laughs) He's a party guy. (laughs) He had tribal tattoos. A lot of people don't know this. But by the turn of the century, Victoria had 42 grandchildren. Wow. And her grandchildren were the product of many of these sort of royal couplings. So her kids had married into other royal families. Right. And then... Well, first
1: first of all, even jumping back, Victoria is already related to... She already has German royal blood, right? Right. You know, her royal house is Saxe-Coburg. Gotha. The Hanover's who were imported from Germany uh, when there was, a, when there were no more Stuarts, you know, England had to import a German royal from the duchy of, duchy of electorate of Brunswick-Lunberg. And uh-huh. for like 50, 50 years, uh, England was ruled by a royal house that didn't speak any English. George the Third was the first Hanover who had actually been born there and could speak any English.
2: Isn't that wonderful? That must have been exciting for them. I guess nobody would know, right? Right, how many times? They didn't give like public addresses.
1: Uh, yeah, they they weren't on the radio stuttering away in German at the time. Like if somebody's waving from the coach <laughs> and saying, yeah, yeah, Domka, you don't
2: even notice, right? <laughs> no, couldn't hear it over the roar of the crowd. And Prince Albert was a was a saxe Coburg Gotha that married Queen Victoria. So she married some kind of a cousin. They are all cousins. They're all cousins with one another.
1: And there was no uh, stigma against this at the time. I think four of her grandchildren married First cu- or is it four of her children? Four, For, four
2: of her grandchildren married first cousins? Four of her grandchildren married first cousins. That's right. And I mean, her grandchildren included what became kind of the monarchs of a great number of nations. Like her grandchild, Maud, was queen of Norway. Uh, her grandchild, Marie, was queen of Romania. Uh, one of her grandchildren was Lord Mountbatten, who famously lived into, unto the 60s and was murdered by an IRA bomb. That could maybe be an omnibus. Uh, yeah, it should be. Uh, Victoria Eugenie was queen of Spain. She had connections to the, ro- I mean, like direct family connections to the royal houses of almost every nation in Europe. The Danes, the...
1: There would really be no expectations that your uh, your king and queen would be locally born and raised like there is today. You know, you you would expect it to just some some Greek to appear someday.
2: Well, it's very similar to the fact that very few of the Seattle Mariners were born and raised in Seattle. (laughs) Right, they're all (laughs) recruited. It is like sports teams where you're like, I love this guy, he is
1: Seattle. And then he gets traded and you're like, I hate that guy, he's Minnesota now.
2: (laughs) But wait. But wait. You loved him like a day ago. But most interestingly... I think for the purposes of this show, for the purposes of this concert, uh, Victoria had two grandsons who became the heads of major royal houses. One of them was what you would think of naturally, uh, King George V of the United Kingdom. Only because
1: his his older brother died.
2: Only because his brother, uh, Albert Victor, who was a very dashing figure... And was everyone was looking forward to him being the king of England, and he died of a of a flu basically pre pre nineteen eighteen flu pandemic. He died of a eighteen eighties flu pandemic, leaving his younger brother, who was only a year younger uh to become king george v
1: i think um Queen Victoria had her concerns about Albert victor, you know as, as cut he cut such a dashing figure, yeah, he, he also cut a swath through. You know every bordello in Europe. He's pretty sw- swashbuckling. He was one of these syphilitic party boy types, and in fact, he's the only one of Queen Victoria's grandchildren who is suspected of being Jack the Ripper. One, one, <laughs> one of the many conspiracy theories about Jack. I mean, in these, you know, for these Ripperologists, it's never just going to be some normal guy, some butcher, some East End butcher or something. It's always going to be somebody with lots of historical record about him to study. And I guess there is some uh, anecdotal evidence tying the Duke of Clarence to the, uh, the murders
2: in East London.
1: Really? I mean, he may have had the, you know, if he, if he's crazy with syphilis from the time he's
2: 16, he has means motive opportunity. Are you sure that he's the only grandson of Queen Victoria that was suspected of being Jack the Ripper? You said that as though, <laughs> as though. Do you, do you have another theory? I'm, I'm willing to entertain pretty much any
1: theory about royals killing prostitutes. I don't know. I mean, the, uh, like, do you think it could King have been- George V. What if it was Maud, Queen of Norway, who did it?
2: <laughs> well, I, it's, it's funny because we think of these alternate histories, right? Like, uh, Assad in Syria, his original, the, the, his heir was um, his oldest son, Basel, who was a playboy, and everyone thought, oh, this guy, you know, he's not fit to take over the house of, of Assad. And he ended up dying in a playboy-style car crash. And then his son Bashar, who was like a mild-mannered ophthalmologist, yeah, he's an eye doctor, uh, and everyone thought, "Oh, what a you know this guy this like will liberalize the yeah. Middle East. This is going to be great." Thank goodness this guy came along instead of that darn playboy.
1: Thailand has the issue right now where they they just worshipped their previous king. You know, sure. pictures everywhere. It's against a lot of say anything. But nice about the guy, which is why we're not going to. Nope. I don't want the ties and the Scientologist after us. Nice king of Thailand. But he, you know, can't live forever. And when he when he died at an advanced age, I think he was in his nineties, his Playboy son, Playboy son took the throne, and now you know, don't put up any footage of that guy because right. he's going to be doing something goofy and it's against the law.
2: Yeah, really, really hard to worship him as he as he wrecks Porsches or whatever he's doing.
1: Queen Victoria was very worried about, uh, you know, she had the, uh, you know, if Albert Victor did not take the throne, this playboy, his younger brother, um, pr- George. Prince George, the future George V, yeah. was quite the opposite, just a stay-at-home homebody who just loved his... Stamps and loved his his target shooting. Super mild mannered and super. It seems like just an uncomplicated man. So she was just very worried. Like, am I even going to be able to m- marry Mister Stamps off? Right. I mean, at the at the time, it's not clear who's gay because nobody can come out. Right. But obviously, if you have forty two grandkids, you know some in of these some proportion. of these princes are not interested in marrying a woman at all. Right. right. <laughs>
2: at least five are gay,
1: and we don't even know who it is. Um. And so, yeah, Victoria had a very hard time finding a, a princess who would, uh, you know, talk stamps and uh, shooting with Prince George. She, but she was a very
2: active matchmaker, I think. You know, she, she
1: took all this very – as one of her most
2: serious duties. Well, if you think about what was – I mean, when she wasn't overseeing the Royal Navy out Captain Aubreying around <laughs> – Eliminating the Barbary pirates and... I don't
1: think she was on the pirate
2: ship. Just because <laughs> just that
1: happened to Gilbert and Sullivan operettas.
2: <laughs> I don't know how much she was actually uh, on the boats. Well, she was managing the, the British royal family pretty successfully. But her oldest grandson was uh, a young man named William who was heir to the throne of Prussia and ended up becoming Kaiser Wilhelm II.
1: That's so crazy.
2: So here she has two grandsons, uh, one of whom is the king of England and one is the Kaiser of Germany. And these were nations that were in a struggle now that Germany had, or rather that Prussia had become a kind of, not only a unified nation, but Prussia had ascended to being the... Um the nation of the Germans. Austria had always been the most powerful Germanic empire in Central Yeah, they Central ran Europe. Central Europe. But uh, that Austria was in decline. There was an Austro-Prussian war right in this period in 1866. And the result was that the Prussians sort of became the, the font of the German people. They're the new team to beat. And uh, Kaiser Wilhelm takes control. And now it would appear that Queen Victoria's machinations actually were working as she intended, working to solidify Europe because their familial bond would relieve some of these dynastic struggles and the, this, the, these struggles of empire.
1: These two rival empires are now both being run by first cousins. And it's funny, since you mentioned counter-alternate histories, uh, you know, imagine a world in which Victoria only has the one child. I think Victoria is, Wil- is Wilhelm's mother. Right. And what that means is he would have inherited the British throne as well. So you could be, you know, you could have whatever happens when all the tensions of world war one are boiling up and Britain is faced by the fact that the Kaiser, a a Prussian King is sitting on their own throne. Now it might not have gone well.
2: Well, it's hard to, it's so hard to alternate history that period because there are so many factors. And, and one of the ones that we always think of as being a factor in both world war one and world war two is the fact that Britain and France and these maritime economies had the outlet of of empire, the outlet of colonialization. They were, I mean... Uh, the,
1: and all uh, the wealth pouring in that right. that provides. Britain... F-
2: famously, I think you may have heard this story, but lost the United States in a little conflict called the Revolutionary War.
1: And I hate that. I know. It, it, that was bad news. And, and- Like, just think if the British had, to, had continued to run the colonies.
2: We'd be like Canada. We'd we, apologize for everything. We would have abolished
1: slavery mm-hmm. sooner. That's true. No no war of 1812. Well, although that maybe, may- Maybe
2: more benevolent policies toward the Indians. That may not, uh, none of that may have come to pass. I mean, the British were never super benevolent towards the Indians. But also, uh, the American South was a big uh, the the mercantile nature of the the raw materials, tobacco and cotton. Uh, although Britain eliminated slavery, yeah. In the what, early if they, 1800s. what if they wouldn't have had the clout to do it? And we, but but the American South was feeding the mills and the bordellos of the United Kingdom, and they turned a blind eye to the slavery because it was so profitable to trade with the Southern states. So who knows what. How they would have navigated that, but Germany didn't have that same outlet. They, they were late to the the colonialization. They were game. getting
1: out Africa by Belgium yeah, for crying out loud. Belgium had all and of Portugal. Central Africa,
2: and Germany was like, oh, I guess Jeez, we'll gosh. take what is there anything? A little bit of a little bit of this, a little bit of Monica in my life, a little bit of if there's any German Africa, I there even, there is. There's uh, they were in. They were in South Africa a little bit. There was, it's not Rhodesia, they were in... um,
1: I guess modern day Rwanda
2: and Burundi. Were German colonies. They were parts of German East Africa. But but not till like 1885. So German ambition, they had to express it within Central Europe. They didn't have the ability to... You're making them all sound for. like toddlers. It, well, they are, and they were. Who, if they can't vent uh, <laughs> at home, will do it at school or vice versa. The Their industrialization, the idea that, that I mean, it's, it is a foundation of nationalism that you expand. I mean, nationalism uh, is predicated on the idea that you conquer. And so at, during this era of nationalism, the Germans had to conquer The people immediately around them, which for a long time were just other Germans, but then they quickly turned their attention to Poland, and ultimately disastrously (laughs) multiple times to Russia.
0: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musiciancom slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start.
1: <laughs> uh, so how did this play out in World War One? You don't hear a lot of st- stories from the First World War about how the the warring kings giving patriotic
2: speeches were first cousins who would see each other at family reunions. Well, there's another wrinkle. Which is that there was a third cousin, and that cousin, although not a direct first cousin, uh, like a, a grandchild of Queen Victoria, was a cousin through marriage and through other connections through this like spider web of European. Sure, it's a family. It's
1: a family tesseract. It's not just a tree anymore at this point because there's so much uh, you know all the branches
2: reconnect. Um, the third cousin was none other than. Tsar Nicholas of Russia, (laughs) who was also a cousin of the Kaiser and the king. Yeah, he married a, let's see, he married a Danish princess
1: whose sister had married Kaiser Wilhelm, right? So Queen Queen Victoria's granddaughter-in-law, her sister was
2: Tsarina Alexandra of the Romanovs. So, and the Tsar himself was third cousin and simultaneously, second cousin once removed of King Edward or of King George, rather. Uh, so they were all quite intimate with one another, <laughs> but also weirdly, and and I mean dr- the the weirdness is dramatic. The Kaiser, the King, and the Tsar all looked like, well, they all looked like brothers, and the King and the Tsar looked like
1: twins. Um, they just were like it was like the same SNL cast member in different. Makeups and beards.
2: It was, uh, it's crazy. And if you look at a picture of them together, it's shocking that they are, that they aren't twins, Uh, particularly King George and Tsar Nicholas. They're fairly good looking too, which means the
1: effects of inbreeding seem to have been staved off for some time. They're very handsome. Or or at least they were counterbalanced by the fact that the most
2: attractive royals would have the most offers, right, Uh, of marriage. Well, but in this sense, uh, like King George was an accidental king. It should have been his older brother. Mm. So through this accident of fate, we had three men sitting on the thrones of three of the most powerful countries in Europe. And they're all very similar in age and they all look very much like one another. And all very close to Victoria. She was a doting grandmother and they vacationed together (laughs) and all were personally very devoted to her. And so... During the, this period... They're like the Rat Pack. They really were. And King George and Tsar Nicholas were very bonded to one another, extremely close personally. There are innumerable instances of them vacationing together. They loved to put on fancy military uniforms and pose with one another. They were conscious of and very pleased with the fact that they resembled one another so closely. Uh, and the the odd man out in this case, was their older cousin, Kaiser Wilhelm. Oh, is
1: he like the cousin that nobody wants to show up at the family reunion because he's, he's just going to be yelling and breaking stuff?
2: He was bitter and angry and frustrated. Wilhelm was the oldest, but he was born with a, uh, a withered hand ah. and was very uh, self-conscious about it. And during this time, of course, that was it was regarded as a sort of evidence of a flaw sure, in his Sure, it's, it's like a divine blight. Like, right.
1: why did God, you know, Richard III is like, well, if I'm going to be hunched over, I'm going to play a villain then,
2: right. why not? And he, uh, maybe even more than the others, loved Victoria personally and was devoted to her. But he was, by all reports, super awkward and when they would all get together in in these big family tag football games or whatever it was that royal people did then, shoot, whatever,
1: whatever the nineteenth century
2: Kennebunkport yeah was. shoot lions together or or um, yeah, abolish slavery or whatever it was that that was the fashion at the time probably a lot of yachting that's probably the one thing that doesn't doesn't change a ton of yachting. Wilhelm was always to the side, and he was very conscious of it, and it made him angrier. So this seems like you know something that was intended
1: by. Queen Victoria as a way to bring Europe together to put a bunch of cousins on all the thrones of Europe may actually backfire if the cousins don't get along. Because you just add family dynamics to whatever his ministers are telling him about foreign policy.
2: Right, a tremendous boon if Queen Victoria is alive. And uh, during her life, all of these cousins remained faithful to her. She's and like the Kaiser Whisperer. She was, she was. She kept the the German ambitions somewhat muted by just the fact that she didn't want uh, any arguments over the dinner table. But Victoria only lived till 1901. Only? She did great. She did pretty darn what? good. How long did you want her to live, John? <laughs> she, she, that she woman did, gives and she gives. She did okay. I mean, it's not, she didn't live to be like 900, like Methuselah. I Is, mean- is that what you were hoping for? Yeah, the Bible, the Bible has all these hot shots that live hundreds of years. Make, she only making lives, us feel bad about ourselves. She only lived to be 81, although an impressive reign.
1: 81 in uh, 1901, that's like living to be 160 today.
2: That's really good. What, what makes her impressive is that she reigned for so long. She took the throne in 1837. Yeah. I mean, that is 64 years she was on the, on the throne of England.
1: That's paltry by
2: Queen Elizabeth's standards. You know, well, right? sure, but she's the longest reigning monarch in all of time, isn't she? Queen Elizabeth II? Uh, uh, no, but it's getting close.
1: She's, she's, she's doing well. She's who, on pace. Who reigned longer? Well, as we record this in your distant past, uh, Queen Elizabeth still has Queen Elizabeth. Can queen Elizabeth? I, I It turns out I've <laughs> never said that word. Is that right? Is that how you say it? Queen of <laughs> uh it still has about six year five or six years to go before she passes uh Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King oh, the sun of King. France, who reigned so long that I think he was replaced by his great grandson. Oh, there's also a Liechtensteinian uh ruler, Johann the Second, who ruled Liechtenstein Johann the Good, uh uh-huh. Luckily.
2: Yeah, that's nice.
1: You don't want the terror you want having the Terrible ruling that long. He ruled Liechtenstein between eighteen fifty eight and nineteen twenty nine. Whoa. Wow, civil war to Great Depression. And uh, Queen Elizabeth is still three or four years away from his record.
2: Well, I'm rooting for Elizabeth, although I don't know if she's going to make it another seven years. It
1: would be funny if she outlived uh, Prince
2: Charles. The poor guy's just waiting oh, and waiting. Oh, poor Charles. She messes
1: up his life with her weird parenting, and then
2: <laughs> he never <laughs> he takes his, the throne. Spend his whole life in that same double-breasted blue blazer with the brass buttons.
1: The, uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, her husband, are both descendants of Queen Victoria. Him, on I assume, through the Greek, through the Greek royal side. family. That's right. So to this day, we still have this effect of uh, Queen Victoria's matchmaking still determining who runs Europe.
2: Well, unfortunately, her matchmaking did not save Europe because after her death in 1901, the fragile balance started to come unraveled. And as we know, by 1914, the situation had become untenable and Germany and Austria ultimately put aside their differences and declared war. It turned, it turned
1: out their German co-germanness was more appealing than their co-germanness with the uh the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha's now running
2: England. But during the during World War 1, three of the main belligerents were these three cousins who were leading nations. Um the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha name did not play very well in the House of Hanover didn't play very well in England public opinion at the time. And so they changed the family name to Windsor in order to give it a more British
1: vibe. I love the idea of branding, like getting a consultant in there and being like, we've tested Windsor. It goes very well. It means nothing. It's not German. <laughs> it
2: comes from just, yeah, it's just a little game we play.
1: I assume the castle predated, like, they, they're named for the place where the castle was and not the other way around.
2: Yeah, they took the name from the castle, not the castle from the family.
1: So they just wanted something that really connoted. English countryside, and Windsor. hey, how about this castle where the monarch king has lived for 800 years or Mountbatten. whatever? Uh, well, it was ma- many things. You know, there was all this anti German propaganda during World War I. So that was the time also when German shepherds got renamed Alsatians uh-huh. you know, because it
2: would be unpatriotic to own a German dog. <laughs> well, uh, the World War I really, uh, in large part, was a product of Kaiser Wilhelm's like bad stewardship that was a result of his you could make a case the frustrations of having grown up as the unloved cousin he had a kind of bumbling foreign policy he was very autocratic he believed as his grandmother did that his familial relations with these cousins would prevent them from actually going to war he thought that so he thought he could push the envelope and he, could, uh, he did he tried to build up the german navy to compete with the english partly probably just out of Uh, competitive spirit with his first cousin. And he was then unable to manage the war effectively, although he tried to retain like authority over the Prussian army. Um, By the end of the war, he was just a shadow. Oh, is that right? He was no longer calling the shots by the end of the war? No, no. It became sort of Hindenburg became the de facto leader of the Germans. And he was, uh, he was depressed. He was bitter. He was defeated. And at the end of world war one, he abdicated and there was no longer a monarchy in Prussia or in Germany. So he was the last of his line. He Or Russia, for that matter. Well, and that's the other thing. Halfway through World War I, the Russian Revolution happened, and Tsar Nicholas was deposed and then ultimately killed. And his wife, who was Queen Victoria's grandchild, and the mother of Anastasia, they were all executed next to a railroad track. So was Anastasia, I think, Despite well, despite our... Our fondest hopes. It depends. There are some theories that she married George Thor- uh, Soros and then faked the moon landing. But <laughs> So the only monarchy of those three to survive World War I was the English monarchy. George V continued to rule the land until his... Wisely and well. Uh, wisely and well, until his eldest son took over for just a brief... <laughs> for a few minutes. A brief period before, again, his second eldest became another beloved chain-smoking king. And this began an era where a lot of the royal houses of Europe that were staffed by the progeny of Queen Victoria gradually fell into ruin, and then those countries became, well, not all democracies, unfortunately. A lot of them became autocracies of a different kind, a 20th century kind.
1: It's funny that this idea we have today that the same tiny group of people actually is running everything and calling all the shots was true back then. I mean, this is kind of the ultimate example. 3 of these kids running around on vacation and then growing up to run Europe. You know what I would like to see is some kind of um maybe a Terence Malick style movie that intercuts all the diplomacy and geopolitics of World War 1 with kind of sunny gossamery flashbacks to all these kids running around their vacation homes with toy swords, yeah, you know, and, and toy horses whacking
2: at each other and then flash forward to the trenches. This would be good. Really literally true. And many of the descendants of these deposed leaders lived until the, you know, late in the 20th century. I mean, I'm sorry, the immediate descendants. So like the sons and daughters of Victoria's grandchildren Continued to be active in European politics, and gradually now there are very few royal houses that still exist: Denmark, Belgium, the
1: Netherlands. There still is some intermarriage. I remember when I lived in when I was living in Spain. Everyone was everyone loved that the the Spanish king had married this beautiful Greek queen, and uh, they were hoping that the maybe the Infantas would marry royalty. Although it doesn't always happen
2: anymore. Well, and we'll uh, we'll have another episode hopefully not immediately, but one on some of the royal houses in Europe that are still sort of pretending to their, their long-ago dissolved thrones. But we'll save that for a future entry.
1: Queen Victoria's last surviving grandchild was Princess Alice, the Countess of Athlone, who died, any guesses? i take a shot at this? 1990. Pretty close. 1981. And uh, her last great grandchild also passed away very recently. Um, in 2012, Carl Johann Bernadotte, the Count of Wiesborg, died. And he was her last living great grandchild as well. So, you know, the world can definitely still be shaped by the decisions and uh, matchmaking uh, yentaism of Queen Victoria, <laughs> but uh, it can't literally be shaped by her grandchildren and great grandchildren anymore.
2: Well, it is true that we. That It's so common to imagine that the world is being run by uh, unseen hands and alliances between powerful families and people that who live in a rarefied air that the rest of us can only imagine. But this is from a time when it was all right out on the table. Um, it wasn't a secret at all. It wasn't a secret at all. You just assumed every famous person was every other
1: <laughs> famous person's cousin. <laughs> And that concludes Queen Victoria's Grandchildren, entry 1020.IS1418, certificate number 26374, and the Omnibus. Futurelings, we hope that social media in your day is just as extinct as the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, but in our day, it was on its last legs, and as a result, the Omnibus Project was one of the most popular accounts at at Omnibus Project on just about every social
2: media platform. Right. There was no competing Omnibus Project that beat us to all those social media handles. We were very lucky. We were early adopters. John and I even got
1: our own names. I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter. I'm
2: at John Roderick. Frustrating all of the other Ken Jennings's and John Roderick's in perpetuity, because as we know, Gmail will always be the de facto Mail program. I mean, that's how you'll you'll
1: prove your name now. Uh, you know, police officer, robot police officers will pull you over in the future and they won't want state ID. They'll just want to see your email
2: address. I feel kind of bad for all the at John Roderick 12s and at John Roderick 17s out there, but I don't feel that bad for
1: them. You got at JohnRoderick.com and I don't I know if I knew that.
2: I did. I have JohnRoderick.com.
1: I do not have KenJennings.com.
2: Oh, who has KenJennings.com? Some Florida dude who
1: ran for as a Republican in the Florida State Senate 20 years ago or something and uh, has never given up the site. So I have to settle for Ken Jennings with a hyphen. It's it's literally that, Ken Jennings with a hyphen.
2: In fact, I I also got at John Dot Roderick at all these things. I also got at John Morgan Roderick. I think I just went out and got everything because at the time, there was just gold lying on the ground. You were not yet a public figure when you bought these? Oh, I I was. I mean, I was in, I was a rock star.
1: Your first record came out? In
2: 2001.
1: That's still kind of late though, right? I mean, there were five years for people to get those John Roderick
2: URLs and they were not, they were not doing it. I mean, it's late if I was looking for at bestdeals.com or <laughs> at, at like... Petfood.com. ...shoestore.com. Uh, but like John Roderick, I think people typically name John Roderick. They tend to be Welsh. They tend to be Mormon. And they tend to be late adopters. So... In 2001,
1: the internet had, uh, you know, the .dot com bubble had just popped. Right. So all those people who had bought johnroderick.com in hopes of selling
2: it was all John Roderick
1: related merchandise back out in the in the open market. They they needed them they needed the <laughs> cash. They were they were going to sell cheap. I paid zero point zero dollars. We are Omnibus Project at. HowStuffWorks.com. If Which you have, was
2: very lucky to be the first one to get Omnibus Project at HowStuffWorks. Because
1: HowStuffWorks uh, had a lot of uh, people who wanted that email address. They're churning out omnibus projects all the so time. So many Omnibuy. Uh, but no, if you have access to electronic mail somehow, you can access us there. If you would like to send us physical media of any kind, please do. You can do so at uh, Omnibus Project, PO Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. No hand
2: grenades. You can, unless they're um, defunct ones, like collector ones. Is that true? Yeah. All right. If you send me a collector hand grenade, I'd be happy. I'm guessing the post office would not be happy. They don't know. It's just another heavy thing in a box. They can't tell. Uh, If you would like
1: to commune with fellow enthusiasts of this or any other Omnibuy, um, many of them congregate at the Futurelings group on Facebook. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. As Ken points out, um, this could be the end of the Pax Americana and the rise of the Pax Chinoise. (laughs) I'm sure it's Sino something. The the, the, Sino Pax Sinensis. But we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence in the form of a sentient tentacle allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in The Omnibus.